Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, then you might find yourself wondering about the Old Testament. Maybe you're going through a year-long Bible reading program, or you just picked up a Bible for the first time and you were thumbing through it. Or maybe you're an avid Bible reader, but you avoid the Old Testament because there are so many things in there that that are confusing to you, or you wonder how they're supposed to apply. Well, we understand that the Bible is broken up into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to put it very simply, the Old Testament is made up of history, prophecy, poetry, and laws. Laws that were applicable to the Israelites. They were a people that lived a long time ago that God had selected from all the peoples of the earth to represent him. These people would live differently. They would act differently. Their morals would be of a divine nature. And they would be expected to represent God and to teach other people about the nature of the one true God. But as you read through the Old Testament, you realize repeatedly that God prophesies, that is, he predicts that a better law would come one day through the coming of a Messiah. The Messiah, of course, is Jesus Christ, who we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament, then, is made up of a little bit of history about the early Christians, as well as some epistles or letters that were written to Christians in the first century. It was always God's intention to replace the old with the new. Even when he was first implementing the Old Testament or the Old Law, some might even call it the Old Covenant. A covenant is kind of like a contract or the basis of a relationship between two parties. But even when he was enacting that Old Covenant, he was planning for the future. And in the future, there would be the New Covenant, the covenant through Jesus Christ that would be the better covenant, the perfect covenant. Let me read a couple things here. If you've got a Bible handy, go to the New Testament and look at Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, that is those who were not part of that original covenant, the Israelites or the Jews or the Hebrews as they came to be known, they were now brought close to God, not by the old covenant, but by the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the thing that divided Jew from Gentile, the thing that divided Israelite from non-Israelite, the thing that divided people under the old law from those who were not under the old law. By abolishing, in verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that's the idea of hostility or conflict, 
He abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So look what Jesus did when Jesus came. And you read about his life again in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. When Jesus came and he lived his life and he died on that cross, he took the old law and put it to death. He completely put it to death. He abolished in his flesh the law of commandments. He put it to death. Another great passage is found in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament again. In Hebrews chapter 8, we read about a prophecy concerning the coming of the new covenant and that that new covenant would be a perfect covenant. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, he describes that as the better covenant. And he describes the old one, the old law, the Old Testament, as becoming obsolete and ready to disappear. Now, here's what I'm getting at with all of this. If you're fairly new to the Bible, or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or maybe you know the Bible pretty well, but you find yourself regularly leaning on Old Testament passages to justify what you're doing as a Christian, then we need to ask ourselves a good question. Why the law? Why did God ever even implement the Old Testament if the New Testament was his purpose all along? Now, Paul the Apostle even asked the same question in Galatians 3, verse 19. He says, why the law then? Essentially, what he's asking is, if it was God's purpose to get to the new covenant, if it was always his design or his desire to get to Jesus, to get to that uh, Christian age, then why did he even implement the old law in the first place? Why was there a law before Christ? Now, we sometimes don't recognize the value behind studying the old law. After all, it was the oft-forgotten law of a people that are no longer recognized as God's people. When you read it, it feels sometimes like a, a seemingly tedious code of conduct that regulated everything from marriage relationships to how you treat your livestock to animal sacrifices and everything else in between. And we're no longer under this law. It says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You can't be saved by all the laws that you see in the Old Testament. Those laws, the sacrificial system, the moral codes, the way that they lived under that old law, you cannot be saved. You cannot be justified by that law. Or as it's put so perfectly in John 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But all of this still leaves us wondering, why the law then? Why did God go out of his way to show up at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus and give Moses the Ten Commandments? Why go out of his way to ask them to build this elaborate tabernacle and to institute this even more elaborate animal sacrificial system Why did he reveal so much to Moses and to Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the high priest? Why did he go out of his way to institute the old law? Well, even though the old law, the Old Testament, is obsolete, even though we're not under the Old Testament, 
Even though we're not to go to the laws of the Old Testament to justify what we do religiously or what we do morally, there's still something to be learned from it. So with the rest of our radio program, I want to look at three things that answer the question of why the law. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about truth? What do we learn about right and wrong from the law that is so valuable? Well, the first thing is this. Number one, the law helps man see God's holiness. Go to Psalm 119 in the Old Testament. Psalm 119 and go to verse 137. I know Psalm 119 is a pretty long psalm. But in verse 137, it says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thou hast commanded thy testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. From the psalmist's perspective, every law of God, all of his statutes, all the regulations, things that we might think of as being kind of tedious, these are the things that makes God holy. From the pure and righteous God comes forth pure and righteous judgments. The law was perfect, so perfect, in fact, that it would have taken a perfect person to fulfill every part of it. God made his edict so that mankind would fully understand its place as sinful, as lonely. There is no conceivable way for man to achieve moral perfection by the law. That's Galatians 3 and verse 10. It's a standard that's too far above every man in every way to make us perfect. Hebrews 7 verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. And I think what he's saying there is that nothing is able to be perfect under that law because there's simply no capability there. So we have in the old law a set of rules meant to regulate God's people in the Old Testament. These rules are perfect in every way. They cannot all be followed by simple and impure people. Go to the book of Hebrews. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, look at this little, just a quick reference here that I think is eye-opening. Talking about that first law, he says in Hebrews 8 verse 7, For if that first covenant or that first law had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So what he's saying is, if the old law or the Old Testament was perfect, then God wouldn't have needed to go to the perfect, the better law in Jesus Christ. But look at what it says here in verse 8. For finding fault with them. And he goes on to quote from the book of Jeremiah and a prophecy about the new covenant. But finding fault with them. Was the problem with the old law? Or was the problem with the people trying to keep the old law? In order to emphasize the one-way dependence of the relationship between God and man, God gave the Israelites rules that essentially required perfection. In lieu of perfection, the alternative is grace and forgiveness, which can only be given by God. The law was also given by God to show how sinful man is in comparison to God. One writer put it really well in his own commentary on the law of Moses, whereas God's laws are an expression of his righteous character, they're also a reminder of man's lawlessness and iniquity. Romans chapter 3 echoes this in verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's a quote, by the way, from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Now understand, 
that when you read that passage, whether it's in Psalm 14 or Romans 3, the writer isn't saying that we are incapable of good or that we are totally incapable of being righteous or seeking after God. No, what he's saying is there is nobody who can be completely righteous. There is no one who is the embodiment of perfect righteousness. There is nobody who can completely understand or who seeks after God 100% of the time. All people have at some point turned aside, and all of us together, collectively, mankind has made itself worthless. There is nobody who is totally perfect, not even one. And the law showed how much man had fallen short of God's glory. All the rules, all the regulations, they were meant to be targets toward which the Hebrews or the Israelites could aim. The law was the ideal, the perfect. If they could follow this standard, they would be as godly as humanly impossible in this life. And at the same time, though, it reminded them how much they had missed the mark. In fact, that's exactly what sin is. The Greek word for sin is hemartia, which literally means to miss the mark. Every departure from God's divine word is missing the mark that he has set for man. It's missing the standard and falling below what is expected. But there's a second reason why God gave the law, and that was to define sin and its many consequences. The purpose of the law was not to eliminate sin from the world. It it couldn't extinguish it nor did it abolish unrighteousness. Instead, the law brought about the knowledge of it. Romans 7 verse 13 says that the law made sin utterly sinful in order to define just what transgression, just how bad sin really is. So God enacted this old law to help define sin and define righteousness so clearly that there there would be no excuse for his people. He wanted his people to be so clean and pure that every other nation around them would marvel at the wisdom of their God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And it worked. There were times in Israelite history when heathens or the Gentiles were more impressed with God's law than Israel was. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. The Assyrians, the people of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. Or in the New Testament, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. These are all examples of Gentiles or non-Jewish people who saw the law of God and admired it. In some cases, even followed it and had a hand in fulfilling the will of the Lord. So whether we're talking about Jew or Gentile in the Old Testament, the law made sin clear. It clarified, it defined sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, puts it this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul will go on to describe it also in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
may never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now he goes on to say in verse 12, this is Romans 7 verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, rather it was sin in order that might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Sin was defined by the law. As he puts it there in Romans 7, he never would have known what coveting was unless the law had said, thou shall not covet. He wouldn't have known that coveting was wrong. So the law defined that. The law said coveting is wrong. It removed any of the excuse. It removed any of the ignorance. Without an enacted law, something can't be unlawful, like Romans 4 verse 15 says. So when the law was given, when truth, when right and wrong, when the blessing and the curse were revealed by God through Moses in the giving of the law, all of mankind's excuse or ignorance was nullified. So with our remaining time, Let's look at a third reason why the law was given. That is to show the need for a Savior. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says of that old law and its sacrificial system, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As we already noted earlier, sin became utterly sinful when the law came into existence. With all this sin in the world, even the animal sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, even those were not able to cleanse. Instead, the sins of one year were simply pushed forward to the next year and so on and so on. No person under the law was ever truly forgiven under that law. No person could find salvation because of that law. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 says, For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Listen to that again. That law can never by its sacrifices make somebody perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. Now, even though one could come and offer a sacrifice at the tabernacle or the temple, and that sacrifice would deal with sin, it was not an eternal solution for sin. My friends, it all goes back to sacrifice. Under the law, sacrifice was necessary to deal with sin. The blood of animals was used to atone for the transgressions under that law, but it was always impossible for that blood to take away the sins. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, as it says in Hebrews. It only pushed the sins away. It saved them for later judgment. Blood was a key component to that law. After Moses had finished reading all the oracles of law, he sprinkled the books with blood. Moses also took sacrificial blood and he sprinkled it on the tabernacle itself. 
He took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people as well. He took the blood and he sprinkled it on Aaron and the priests. As the writer of Hebrews puts it very well in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 21 through 22, nothing can be enacted without blood. This covenant was enacted on blood, so a new covenant must be enacted on blood as well. So if it was necessary for that old covenant to be founded upon blood, then it became even more necessary for the new covenant to be founded upon blood. But blood that is more pure. Instead of sacrificing animals every year at a feast, or on certain days when certain sins were committed, it has become a new system with only one sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time, for all sins. That is Jesus Christ. He has become the one sacrifice, the better sacrifice of a better covenant enacted on better promises Hebrews 10 verse 14 reads, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In 1 Peter chapter 3, notice the way that it's put here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, not many times, but once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So here are a few practical applications as we bring our program to a close. We are the ones who now have the opportunity to believe in Christ and gain salvation through his blood. We are not under the old law. We are not under the Old Testament. We are the ones who have the opportunity to place membership in his body and become citizens of his glorious kingdom. We do not just read about it in prophecies and think about it as it will come one day. We can be part of his kingdom now. We can do this right now. We can look back at the old law, the Old Testament, with its rules and regulations, with a seemingly unachievable standard, with all of its righteousness, and we can learn a lot of lessons from it. The old law, which is the law of the Israelites, is no longer in effect today, but its value is still immeasurable. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14 talks about that. We can look back at the stories of the Old Testament and see that the situations that believers faced thousands of years ago are very similar to some of the situations that we face today. Now it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Now all of these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. That is the examples of stories from the Old Testament. Those were examples for us to learn from. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Let's learn from the Old Testament. We might not be under the Old Testament. We might not be accountable to its law, but we can learn a lot from the Old Testament. We can see their triumphs. We can see their failures. We can read the book of Judges and see that for times they were really really strong, really righteous and faithful, and other times they fell away and and served the gods of the peoples around them and followed after idols and followed after the lusts of their flesh. We can see great heroes like David, even with all of his faults and failures. We can see heroes like Elijah, who sometimes got quite discouraged. We can see heroes like Hezekiah, who faced incredible odds, yet achieved great things. But we can also read about villains. We can read about villains like Ahab, 
who chose to follow after the ways of the world. We can read about Nebuchadnezzar, who had to learn the hard way that God is the God of all. There's so much to be learned from the Old Testament. Don't let it collect dust on your bookshelf. Notice the love that Old Testament followers had for the scriptures, and yet there were very few copies of their law in circulation. How much more should we adore the complete Bible? Why waste the Old Testament? It makes up two-thirds of the Bible, after all, and it is the foundation upon which the ministry of Jesus was built. Jesus himself and the apostles quoted it at length, and it is the timeless story of God making promises and keeping those promises. Now, if there's anything you'd like to study, if you're curious about the Bible, if you want to learn more about this topic, if you want to know about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, then please reach out to Monte Vista. We'd be happy to open up our Bibles and go straight from God's Word, answering these very difficult and timely questions that you have. As always, my friends, have a wonderful and blessed day. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.